Hey, Matt, uh, can you give me a sense of, of how many people living in Indian country have broadband access? At the Tribal Digital Village, which is uh, 19 tribes in Southern California, we have just about 40% of our reservation homes have access to our broadband network. And there's roughly 3,100 homes on the reservation, about population of 9,000-ish. And the FCC actually says that, you know, 40% across the country have access to to broadband services. But uh, I would love to challenge that figure um, based on just the knowledge I have of other reservations and working with tribes on connectivity issues. Um, there's there's a lot of holes in that thought process. And Hannah, I'm curious, you know, you really dig into what the FCC does on this. Uh, how much faith should we give the FCC numbers? The FCC numbers likely highly overstate how many people actually have internet access. Reservations are primarily located in rural areas which have larger census blocks. The FCC looks at things on the census block level. Um, as soon as one person has access within a census block, they consider the entire census block and everyone within it to have access. So that's the problem with those statistics. The number one reason we do not get access to federal grant money is because those census blocks misrepresent who has access to broadband and say that we're served areas versus unserved areas. Well, for people who are wondering what the FCC is, we're going to explain all that and more, talking about broadband and how we can build local power using some of the lessons that we're seeing from what tribes are doing around the country and what is happening in Indian country. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and I'm hosting this episode of Building Local Power. Along with me, I've got Matt Rantanen, the Director of Technology for the Southern California Tribal Chairmen's Association and Director of the Tribal Digital Village Initiative. Welcome back, Matt. Thank you. Matt and I talked back in 2013 about what he's doing specifically there. We'll, we'll update that a little bit, and we will um, talk about uh, other things as well. But if you really want to hear more of Matt's voice, you can go back to those younger days of 2013. We also have Hannah Trosel who's a research associate and has been on the show before talking about co-ops. She really specializes in uh, broadband research and, and focuses on rural areas. Thanks for having me on the show, Chris. Matt, let me, let me just throw at you as we, as we deal with this. Um, we were talking a little bit about the Federal Communications Commission and the statistics. Um, but let's start a little bit broader. And let me ask you, we, we can stipulate that there's a tremendous lack of broadband access, of high-quality internet access on uh, Indian country lands around the United States. Um, if we had a choice, if you could snap your fingers and either have AT&T providing a mobile broadband package in the same way they do in major U.S. cities on all of those lands over the next year, or we had to wait a little bit longer, and maybe in three or four years, we see many more of these in local tribal initiatives pop up where the tribes are building their own networks. You know, how do you think those two different options would, would uh, result in different outcomes? Well, typically, the barrier to entry with a mobile platform uh, provided by a national carrier is the cost. You know, everybody thinks that Native Americans have casinos and everybody's rich. Well, you know, out of the 567 federally recognized tribes, there's roughly 50 casinos, um, 50 tribes that game. And, you know, some of those are successful and some of them are not. So overall, the tribes are, are actually fairly poor and individually much poorer than that. Looking at 50% unemployment in most situations on reservation, uh, these people can't afford those uh, service plans. 
the the next problem with a mobile platform national carrier like that is that they all have data capacity limits. And if you're going to call a service broadband, um, I think it should come along with an unlimited data scenario because, you know, if you're going to monetize every megabit over your plan and add cost and, and make it impossible for people to do homework, to do uh, video conferencing tutorial and such like that, there, there's no point in going that route. We'd be much better off if the tribes um, were building uh, networks and, and services to themselves. So let me ask, and uh, and Hannah, you could you could pick this up, and then we can you know discuss it, uh, Matt, if you want to jump in. I'm curious if we can just talk a little bit about the benefits of um, the locally owned approaches. The two of you just came back from gathering with a lot of other people at this uh, gathering in uh, New Mexico with the um, Internet Society focused on indigenous networks. It sounds like there's a lot of enthusiasm. So, what are some of the benefits that we're seeing from the tribes building their own networks? You know, there, there's a whole thought process behind the reservation system and the sovereign uh, identity and the sovereign aspect of tribes, and that is self-governance. So um, it's been something that's been pushed by the federal government all along. We all have our own constitutions, our own governments, uh, you know, structures, infrastructure, planning, residential planning, all those types of things, environmental protection agency offices and, and such, emergency services and all. And so having um, our own resource to the internet, providing a network to ourselves or providing a network uh, amongst other tribes as well, seems to go lighter, right along with uh, um, the theory of self-governance and, and self-determination. You know, it dictates that we are in control of, of the services that are being delivered to us. That kind of seems like the boring aspect, right? I mean, like it makes sense philosophically and, and I appreciate that, but, but how does it make a difference in people's lives? Well, the difference it makes in people's lives is um, clearly access to communications and to job research, education, financial opportunities, basic entertainment, you know, so that's that's obviously the more fun version of that. But um, having control of our own networks means that we can actually deliver services that we need versus just services that are set on some tier plan that that somebody else dictates. This is what you need. Um, it's way more beneficial to be able to control that ourselves and, and cater to our own uh, communities. When I was at the summit, a lot of folks talked about how once they had access to the internet, they started forming um, Facebook communities and sharing more of their content um, locally within the community. And it encouraged um, sort of a revitalization of different um, cultural practices. Someone was talking about, I think, sealskin boots at one point and how suddenly all the younger generation really connected that to their actual life and connected it to their like online presence. Yeah, so another thing that happens, well, that happened in the history of the United States is bigger groups of people were cut up into smaller groups to split them up, to take away their strength, um, put on separate reservations. Families were split in half, especially in California. Bigger bigger tribes were cut up into smaller reservations, three or four different reservations per tribe. Brothers were separated and families were separated. And that communication path, you know, basically is difficult because it requires travel, transportation. And with the lack of plain old telephone service, still, you know, still being at 70% penetration in Indian country, um, you know, there's there's still a lot of people that don't have access to normal communication. So bringing broadband into these communities and opening up the opportunity for connectivity 
as much as visual, like video conference, hangout sessions and, and Skype sessions and such, those opportunities give people a way back together to form those alliances again and then work above the reservation system and kind of rekindle some of that old communication path. Matt, you've been in this business for a very long time. Um, you know, it's been more than 15 years of providing internet service uh, wirelessly from the tops of ridges using solar powered and and uh, and other forms of electricity generally off grid. I don't want to spend too much time describing the network. What I want to sort of establish is that you've really been a go-to person over the years. I think you have a good sense of what's happening in tribes uh, around the country. What's an exciting network? And, and more importantly, what are some of the benefits that it's, it's driving that maybe you learn more about or just were reminded of at the, uh, this um, gathering that, that you were just at? Well, one of my favorites is, is always um, referring to an IT director in the Coeur d'Alene Indian tribe, Valerie Fasthorse. She came down to the Tribal Digital Village Network in early 2000s and um, went up to a tower with us, stood on top of one of our battery boxes, looked out over the landscape, standing next to our um, equipment that was using uh, 2.4 gigahertz at the time. And she just said, are you kidding me? You can do all this with Wi-Fi? And then proceeded to go home and over the last 10 years has built this network called Red Spectrum that is a hybridized system between fiber and wireless that is making the tribal digital village look kind of like a hobby network. Um, that's one of my favorite examples. Uh, one of the best things that came out of the Santa Fe meeting, which is what happens when all of us get together on this grassroots level, is that communities that know they need this corner me at lunch, sit me down at a table with all five of their representatives, and basically have me go through a a broadband wireless networking for communities 101 class in 30 minutes time. And they're just feverishly taking notes and gathering my information. And then, you know, we're going to go home and we're going to start this and we'll call you back as soon as we hit the wall. And I was like, that, that's one of the coolest thing that happened uh, during the Santa Fe ISOC meeting. Well, it's, it's exciting that we have that because of um, good federal policies that allow this technology be, to be used unlicensed and, and whatnot. So it's always worth reminding people that we have that. We need to preserve it. Uh, but Hannah, I'm, I'm curious what struck you at the Santa Fe? Was there any compelling stories about uh, locally provisioned networks that you'd like to share with us? What really stuck with me was I ended up at a table with a bunch of people from Alaska and there was one group that was actually from Canada and another group that was from Alaska. And the, the Canadian group was like, how is Alaska able to get this internet access? How are you actually able to like build this? Um, they were doing an undersea fiber cable. And somehow the people in Alaska had figured out a system that would actually work to bring it to their community, whereas the Canadians were like stuck under their government and trying to get them to listen and weren't able to do anything. That's a hopeful example of uh, in a time in which I think many of us are a little bit despondent about how we compare to other nations. So <laughs> I <certainly> right. <laughs> appreciate that. Hannah, you know that, that we're very bullish on electric and telephone cooperatives in helping in rural America build incredible networks. Um, you know, is the, the future as bright in, in the tribal areas? Um, or, you know, there's something major need to change to make sure that people have full access to technology and communications? The thing with the telephone electric co-ops is that they've 
had so much support from the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, in order to build these networks. Uh, we definitely need a major breakthrough. You know, it's happening here and there. And where a tribe has a relationship with, let's say, a rural co-op electric company, you know, they'll get some inroads into connectivity to their tribal buildings, but their connectivity to their their homes on reservation poses problems. Depending on your geography, depending on your weather, you know, fiber hanging on a pole is an option in a lot of places in the United States, but where there's high wind and stuff like that, they have issues. So some of the reservations here in Southern California happen to be on the, you know, in the mountains and some of the harshest weather happens in those mountains because we're close to the coast. We get a lot of different changes in weather in the, in the mountain regions. Some of that fiber can't hang on poles. Digging in the ground doesn't work. So wireless becomes a situation. Wireless is not the best deployment solution for scalability. And some of those rural co-ops don't want to get into that as an alternative. They're typically running fiber where they already have um, electrical resources. So, yeah, there, there is an impasse. Um, it's not a permanent wall, but it, there is certainly some creative solutions that need to be kind of worked out. And it's kind of case by case. And once we get a couple of cases that are great, I think we need to really promote their success so that other people can kind of latch onto that and maybe grow that idea. So like Paul Bunyan Communications Co-op and Leech Lake, for instance. In Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, yeah. possibly. And then Anza Valley Co-op. Uh-huh. which is in Riverside County, California. Which is making encroachments into your area, so you'll finally have good access in your home. Uh, I can see a coil of fiber on my <laughs> telephone pole outside of the house. Now I just have to trench it myself because they're a year behind if they have to trench. They only have one trenching team, uh, so I think I have to go trench it myself. Otherwise, if you can hang it on pole all the way to your house, you're, you're in the queue for within the next month. Hey, this is Chris, probably the person you were just listening to, but this is me from a different time and place with a a quick pitch for you. You might notice that we don't have any advertising, and I'm not going to tell you what underwear to get or that we recommend you also listen to the Goldman Sachs podcast, which I'm assuming is a tutorial on extracting so much wealth from Main Street that all of the local businesses get replaced by maximally leveraged chain stores. Seriously, do not listen to that podcast. But I am asking you to support us so that we can stop these big monopolies from taking all of your money and corrupting our public officials. You can help us do the unique research that only we do and and get that information out to everyone. Donate at ilsr.org slash donate. That's ilsr.org slash donate. There you can also sign up for our newsletters. And if you have energy after that, you could give Building Local Power a rating on Stitcher, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, or whatever they're calling it tomorrow. Thanks. You're practically on staff here now, and we really appreciate your support. One of the, one of the things that we're worried about in cities is that the rapid increase in technology and communication allowing kids that have high-quality access to learn at a much more rapid rate. They have access to more materials. They may be more inspired. Uh, in addition to the other advantages they had in the past, that paradoxically, better Internet access could result in a greater divide between the have-nots and the haves. Is that something that you're worried about on the reservations, Matt? Absolutely. It's something that we deal with every day especially in the education system, you know, kids are required to sometimes even download what their homework assignment is 
let alone do the research and the work for that homework assignment online. And it's just assumed that you have access to internet. And so a lot of the kids in the Southern California reservation system, I'd say probably 90% of them are bust off reservation to go to, uh, you know, so an in-town school, if you will. And that expectation from that school system is that you have access to internet. Well, these kids get back on the bus and go back to the reservation where they don't have access to internet. So a lot of families are taking their only vehicle and loading up the kids, driving down to town 45 minutes to, you know, a McDonald's or a Starbucks and sitting there and poaching internet so that they can download the, the homework assignment and then sometimes perform that homework assignment and then come back home where that vehicle could be used for someone that is bringing money into the household through through work or it could be used for other other sources of of uh, success for that family and it's being tied up just dragging kids back and forth to do internet access this is a show about building local power and i think it's pretty obvious how internet access and and access to education and access to economic development um, is important to that. But one of the things that's often overlooked is is cultural power and a sense of representation. And one of the things that that I've certainly been more aware of as a a white male um, is the way in which I'm constantly fed all kinds of things. Most of the movie stars are are white and male and you speak English as a first language. Um, And I'm learning more about the importance of cultural representation for others. And so, you know, I think the the reaction from um, the African American community from the Black Panther trailers um, is incredible. Um, you know, and Matt, I, I know that you and Hannah are both very big into the, this comic book universe. And so, um, at the Santa Fe, you were there at the same time as an Indigenous Comic Con event. And, and I'm curious if you can just talk a little bit about the importance of of those sorts of things, that cultural power in terms of um, building local power within uh, historically marginalized communities. And I'm going to turn to Hannah first while Matt can think about what he wants to say. The Indigenous Comic Con, this was the second year of it. Each year I have missed it. (laughs) Even this time. Yeah, I was staying with a friend and they did not have time to drive me over to the casino where it was being held. Well, now I feel but, like a real jerk because I thought this was like, you know, something you got to do while you traveled. <laughs> no, but I was really, really excited. I bought tickets um, and was going to go because every time I go to the Chicago Comic Con, I really recognize that I am out of place there. But the Indigenous Comic Con, it's been put together by a lot of different Native women. Like I can think of like uh, Johnny J, for instance. And it's just very, very exciting for me personally. Matt, you uh, look like a superhero already for people who aren't familiar. <laughs> you know, what, do you, what do you think about uh, the importance of, of, kind of the representation in media in this, in this genre? Uh, this is epic, actually. Um, you know, I'm a 23-year veteran of the San Diego Comic-Con and uh, watched that thing turn into the monstrosity that it is today. Uh, I've been to both of the, um, the very first and, the, and then this year's um, Indigenous Comic Con, and I have to say it is uh, an amazing opportunity for Native artists and Native writers and Native creators to take their origin stories and their history and kind of create the the popular art myths and storytelling aspects of their community 
like we see in the Marvel universe and the DC universe today. And we actually have a, a tribal owned print company and we took that print company to both the comic cons and set up a table and just wanted to support them in their efforts to create these awesome stories and illustrate these brilliant, brilliant characters. And uh, we have had a great relationship with um, all of the artists there. Uh, the comic book um, convention creator, Dr. Lee Francis III, has worked with you know many creative, inspirational people, and has an amazing team of folks, to, you know, to put this thing together. And and the stories that I see coming out of this, um, and the excitement that little kids and even adults have when they walk through the show floor. And they see and recognize a character from stories that their grandparents told them when they were little kids about, you know, how um, their culture came about and how their people explain the sun and explain rain and explain things like that and explain the creation story. It's just super cool to see. And there's so much enthusiasm and excitement. So many artists, you know, so much opportunity. There was some amazing um, comics to film stars there to interact with tribal youth and, and tribal people to just kind of tie that whole world together is, is a, it's a magical experience, but uh, I love it. I'm a Comic-Con geek and seeing the core of the indigenous community being able to create and, and just get the stories out there visually is just phenomenal. That would be a, a wonderful place to end if I didn't have one more question that I just really want to put to you, Matt, since you, you do have this long experience of running an ISP, uh, connecting these um, the, the many um, tribes in, um, in San Diego County. And that's, do you have a sense of how it's different um, between you versus if like AT&T was running the same network in terms of um, creating opportunities for people to learn skills in an area in which I think they often uh, don't necessarily have that? The big difference obviously is is just the sheer massive corporation behind the AT&T effort. And, and I say that for a couple different reasons. One of them is it's unlimited resources essentially for build out where we're very restricted on, on budget. Um, our, one of our hardest problems is, is quality of service of the network. And it's, it has to do with uptime. And most of that has to do with solar power. So I don't see like a network that was deployed by an AT&T or, or an incumbent telco having the similar issues because they would throw money be, and just throw money at the problem. The other thing I, I see is that big corporations like that make decisions based on their corporate environment, not on the cultural environment of the community. And so I, I think the network, weird enough that equipment can behave differently, but it, the architecture and the thought process behind the network would be different than the thought process and the architecture, the way we design it. We're trying to be all inclusive. They're looking for low hanging fruit, you know, and, and uh, lowest cost to entry. We are also trying to be mindful of cost. But at the same time, if there's a home that's off the beaten path and we have to generate some other piece of architecture to capture that home, we're going to do that because that's how we as a community work. So I think that might be the two differences that most obvious. It's really insightful. I, I'm curious about one additional thing related, and that's do you have a sense that you're training people in ways that because you're locally owned, um, you can do in a unique way that they may not have opportunities if this was a different operation? Yeah, I'd say, you know, it's more personal approach. Um, you, you know, if you're in a remote community and you happen to have one service person from your incumbent telco, you might get to know them. But the people that work for our our group are um, – 
are all tribal and they are um, from the community in the most part. And so, you know, there's a relationship there already uh, prior to actually being a part of this. So there's, there is a familiarity there and a, a sense of community and there's a different sense of community with some of the folks that are actually on the reservations that are getting service. They, they're entitled to like more of an ownership thought process behind their work every day versus, you know, I'm just coming in to clock in. Uh, so I think I think there's more of a responsibility to try to make the network better. Matt, is there anything you recommend that that people read? We usually just uh, ask if there's a, a, a final recommendation for um, a book or a movie or anything that's culturally related. So it's it's slightly related to technology. Um, it's been made into a movie and it's about to happen. Uh, Spielberg's directing it, but I'd say go out and read Ready Player One. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a little bit worried about the previews. Um, I love that book. I devoured it oh in a vacation, and I was hungry for more. Um, I thought his second book was was pretty bad. Um, but the uh, the movie now has me a little nervous after seeing what's a preview that was um curiously different from what I envisioned. Yeah, um, but with Spielberg at the helm, I I don't think we're going to be disappointed with the movie as a movie. It may not a hundred percent represent the book. But at least I think we'll get another fun movie that, you know, is representative of an era in time that probably near and dear to all our hearts growing up through that era. Yeah, I fully agree. And I'll I'll be definitely be in line to see that movie very soon after it releases. Cool. Well, thank you, Matt, for, for joining us once again. And good luck. And I definitely look forward to to seeing meeting up with you to talk about whatever's happening in the Marvel Universe when our paths cross again. Excellent. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, we got those newsletters I mentioned earlier. You can connect with us on Facebook or, even better, we're really active on Twitter. And once again, please help us out by rating the podcast and sharing it around. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Nick Stumolanger. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Chris Mitchell. And if you're still listening, just a quick note, no relation to Stacey Mitchell. She's really remarkable and I'm really excited to be working with her, but it's just kind of an odd name collision. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Thank you.